Today we continue our series titled Be Transformed on the Book of Romans. And as we're covering these first five chapters this fall, we're looking at two key issues that the first two chap or two first five chapters cover in the book of Romans. The first three chapters are three not quite three and a half because we'll break next week into the second topic is it covers sin. What does sin look like? And Paul in a legal way, and this is what was so neat about Rick's leading communion this morning, Paul in the book of Romans really is presenting a legal case. And he's even doing it in that way and, and we're gonna close out the first half where he's declaring us guilty uh, before God of sin. And every single person on the earth is guilty and brings nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation. And then as we get into uh, the issue of salvation starting next week and through chapter 5, you'll see that it's also a legal declaration. That God's going to legally declare us justified. Not because we are legally innocent, because we're not. He's going to declare us innocent because of something that he has done for us. I'm not going to tell you that. You'll hear next week. But today we're finishing off the case in terms of our brokenness. So as we look at that, just a quick review, because I want you to see the big picture of Romans uh, and not get lost in the details, is Paul's presented a case, uh, kind of how people would have broken down the world in his day. The Greeks and the Romans would have broken down the world into three categories. The barbarians, those people who live outside of civilized society. Then there's the civil people or the Greeks, the Romans, them, because that was kind of the predominant culture of the day, the world power. And then there's the Jews, the, the religious people. And so as Paul lays his argument out, he's showing them that, hey, every single one of us falls under this indictment. You see, civilized people, people like us that, that put on clothes every single day and work normal jobs, we tend to start to think that we're better than people who don't live like we do. And Paul was addressing them, and he started off saying, hey, those barbarians, those people that live way out there and worship strange gods and, and paganism and all these different gods, yeah, they are condemned, because even God's general revelation is enough for them to come to the conclusion that there's a divine being of infinite power. That's what Romans 1 tells us, that every single human being in the universe is under condemnation because even what we have seen revealed to us, even if it's just general creation, is enough, God says, for us to respond to a God, to recognize that, and, and we don't do that. But then Paul turned the table on the kind of civilized people in Rome that have some kind of a conscience and they have laws and, and a, a civilization and they thought they were much better. And he's saying, hey, but you're condemned just as much. Even though you don't have my law, you don't have, they, they weren't following God himself. He says, just the law that I've written on your heart, that in every human being, God basically says, I've stamped this idea of right and wrong. Unlike any other part of creation, human beings have this idea of right and wrong and can make a choice as to whether they do what's right or do what's wrong. Animals work on instinct. They simply do what their instinct tells them to do. We have a choice. And he's saying that stamp of, of right and wrong in you, even though it's broken apart from me, you don't even measure up to your own structure, your own system. That if you created your own right and wrong, whatever your own personal list is, God says, I could ju simply judge you based on what you think to be right and wrong, on anything that comes out of your mouth or any thought that goes through your head about what's right and wrong. And if I measured your life based on that scale, you'd be condemned. 
So suddenly it's like, wow, we thought we were so much better. And God says, you're not. And now the Jews, the religious people, they're laughing. Yeah, and we know those pagans, they're such wicked people. And you Romans, yeah, you're, you're not like us. You don't go through all the religious practices. You don't do all these things that we do. And we're God's special people. And then Paul turns on them and says, now what, let's talk about you, Jews. Let's talk about you religious people. And he says, you who have the law, you have God's special revealed truth. You teach others about it. You talk about it, you practice it, yet you don't follow it yourself. You break the very things that you teach others not to do. And so Paul has set this case against every single people group in the world. And today he's going to summarize that and bring that to a conclusion and talk about one of the most important doctrinal truths in the Bible which is just the sinfulness of humanity, the brokenness of mankind apart from God. And today I want you to see three things, three key questions that we're going to learn about our nature, that we have to understand about our nature to be ready and willing, in a sense, to receive the gift that God's preparing to share with us in this, book, in this, in this whole book. Here's these three questions, and this is how we'll walk through them. First is, what my nature does. We're going to see at the beginning of this passage what my nature does. Because of my brokenness, because of my sinfulness, you're going to see what does that cause us to do. It's, it's what we do in relation to God. So the first thing is what my nature does. The second thing is, is why my nature does it. Paul's going to explain why does our nature do that. Whether you're way out in the bush, whether you're in a civilized society, or whether you're part of some religion, why does my nature do what it does? And then the last thing we're going to see is what my nature cannot do. No matter what we do, what it cannot do. So what my nature does, we'll see. Why my nature does it. And then finally, what my nature cannot do. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, in, in the first 20 verses, Paul's going to finish off this section of Romans that's dealing with sin and its impact in our world. Romans chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. We'll look at the first uh, eight verses and answer our first question, what does my nature or what my nature does? So Paul, in this argument, to understand this, you have to understand how he wrote the book of Romans. And Paul was a Pharisee, if you remember, which is kind of a, a legal... Uh, a religious leader. He would obviously have had a very sharp mind. He was trained by very skilled uh, teachers. And so he's laying out a legal argument here. And what he's doing is what scholars call a diatribe. He's having a conversation with himself as he writes this. And he's posing up objections that people might have to the things that he's just talked about. So he's kind of creating this dialogue of, well, what about this? And then he's answering it himself. So he's asking this question like some objector would have, and then he's answering it according to God's truth. And the fact that he's asking these questions is because people are going to question God's truth. It's what we all do. That's what our nature is, and we're going to see it here in this passage. So I'm going to read through it, and then we'll break down the kind of arguments that he's addressing. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? So now that he's kind of the Jews are saying, hey, we thought we were in a special spot, but now we realize we're just as accountable as the rest of the world. In fact, we're more accountable because we have God's truth. He's saying, hey, what advantage does the Jew have then? Or what is the value of circumcision, meaning any of their religious practices? And Paul says in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So then another objection comes in in verse 3. Well, what if some were unfaithful? 
Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul answers, by no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But now here's another question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, Paul says, for then how could God judge the world? And now the fourth objection. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation, Paul says, is just. So here's my first point for you of, of what my nature does. is My sinful nature causes me to question God's character. My sinful nature causes me to, to question God's nature. And that's what Paul's having to do here. He's, he's addressing these rebuttals, even from religious people, addressing it from all people, because by nature, we challenge God. That's the sign of our brokenness. And it's not just God in a, in a microscopic level, you could say. We do the same thing with any kind of authority in our lives. Children naturally question their parents. Parents, you naturally question or challenge your boss or any level of authority. We naturally challenge or question our government and their authority. We do this over and over again. I mean, just the dispute with the government and Apple right now reveals that we just want to challenge all those things. And, and yes, it's messy because it's broken people, but by nature, we want to be our own authority. And so when anything comes down on us that, that we don't like, we're going to challenge it. And Paul's revealing that our sinful nature brings about all these objections. And I want to show you the four objections he's talking about really quickly. The first one is that I question his benefits, meaning God's benefits. I question even his benefits. The Jews were doing that. They're saying, hey, well, then what value is circumcision? Or what value is it even being a Jew at all then? If this doesn't save us, if I can't do some little good luck charm with my religious stuff and it doesn't get me what I want, then what's, what's the benefit in, in having these things? And Paul says, much in every way. You've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul doesn't describe or, or, or answer that objection very long here. He's going to spend three chapters later in the book, chapters 9, 10, and 11, going into great detail about this. But for now... He's just raising the objection and just saying, look, to say that we don't have any benefit by having God's word is to miss the point. See, what the Jewish people or what religious people, what we want in general is we want God to give us a get-out-of-jail card free and be able to go on doing exactly whatever we want to do. And the Jews were objecting or the religious people were objecting because they're saying, I just want to, I want to just be able to, to do a couple religious practices and know that I'm good to go and then do whatever I want. So if that doesn't save me, if this having this stuff in my house or putting it around or sprinkling it or saying it every so often doesn't get me what I want, then what's the benefit of being a Jew? We can say the same thing as Christians, but the scriptures, as Paul says, were never intended to save us. They were never intended as a means of salvation. They were always intended to point us to our need for a Savior and to that coming Savior who would come. Second thing we see in this is I question his faithfulness. So we question God's benefits. Sometimes we question the good things he gives us. The second thing is we, I question his faithfulness. He says this like this. Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? 
Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 51, and we'll look at that in a minute. Here's basically the nutshell of this. And this is common even today. It's like, hey, if God's so faithful, then why, why are his people such a mess? I mean, you can see that in Israel. They messed it. They didn't, they didn't follow his covenants. They weren't obeying God. So if his people were blowing it, if they're not faithful, then there, there isn't a God or he's not a very faithful God. Same thing happens today. Just look at Christians. They're such a mess. I mean, if, if that's what a Christian does, then I don't want anything to do with their God because they automatically equate the unfaithfulness of the Christian with the character of God. We do the same thing. We question God's character because he doesn't come through in our lives, on our timeline, the way we want. And Paul's revealing the fact that, that our unfaithfulness in no way means God's unfaithful. In fact, David said it very clear. The quote that he's quoting from in Psalm 51.4, uh, we'll bring up, it comes right after David uh, had an affair with Bathsheba, another man's wife, got her pregnant. And then he arranges to have her husband murdered so that he could make her his wife. You're talking the King David, a man after God's own heart. And it, a year went by before David came to grips with his sin. When Nathan the prophet finally confronted him and, and painted a story for him that, that helped David understand the depth of his sin, David finally repented after a year of living in sinful rebellion. Psalm 51 is his prayer of confession at that moment. Look what he says here. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So as, as he experiences the judgment in, in Psalm 32, as, as David describing the judgment, what the discipline he experienced while he was in that, what is happening here is David saying just the opposite of this arguer. He's saying, hey, when I finally recognize my sinfulness, and I go back to God and I say, you know what, God, you're, you're right. I shouldn't covet another man's wife. I certainly shouldn't commit adultery. Murder is wrong. When I own that, when I confess that, it declares that God was right about those things from the beginning. That I'm the unfaithful one. And the fact that God loves me so much that he would discipline me in a way that would help me turn back to him shows his faithfulness to me and to us, even when we're unfaithful. Paul undermines that argument. David modeled that. The third one he see in here is, I question his justice. I question his justice. So now the guy moves on. He says, okay, so if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, as David's saying, hey, my unrighteousness now shows your righteousness if I repent like that. He says, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So now he's making another twisted argument. Hey, if my unrighteousness shows his righteousness, then it's unrighteous for him to, to judge me then because my unrighteousness is showing his righteousness. I, mean, I know, it's, it sounds like a middle school argument, doesn't it? Right? But that's exactly what we do, don't we? We will twist things any way we can as humans to get our way. And it simply reveals 
our brokenness. Paul says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Meaning, if he won't discipline in, in his own children who are unfaithful to demonstrate his righteousness, if we want him to excuse us to be excused from that, then how can he judge the r- world who's also committing some of these same acts? We're asking him to be one way toward us and some way, someone totally different towards others. So I, I question his justice. And the last one that he gets to is, I question his sovereign glory and excuse my sin. I question his sovereign glory and excuse my sin. Paul says this, he says, or here's the argument, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. So what he's saying is that, okay, so if when I do bad things, it, it reveals God's truth and, and glorifies him as he judges us and does that, then he's saying, why am I still being condemned as a sinner then? Now he's making an excuse, says, hey, my sinfulness just reveals God's glory, so why am I being condemned as a sinner if God made me like this? Kind of that argument. And now my sinfulness makes him look righteous. Why am I being condemned as a sinner? And then he goes on to another step and says, and why not do evil that good may come? Meaning, why not do more bad things so that God's glory can be seen even more in his judgment and discipline? And Paul says, Some people slanderously charge him with saying, he says, their condemnation is just. See, the truth is, is our sinful nature causes us to question God's character. And the moment sin came into the world, it so utterly and completely corrupted us as human beings that unless something changes our perspective, We'll always see through those warp lenses. In fact, look at this story that most of you are probably familiar with. Genesis chapter 3. The, the, the beginning of sin, when sin first came into the world. You know the story? God put Adam and Eve in the garden, told them, do not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and they took of it and ate. And when they ate, it said they recognized they were naked and they were ashamed and they covered themselves up. And then they hid from God. The next time God came through the garden. And here's the first conversation they had after that when they were hiding. And God comes across them and he says, he says to them, he said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I love that. It's just like a parent, right? When it goes to the little kid and you know exactly that they took the cookie from the cookie jar. But you're just asking them, did you take that cookie from the cookie jar? You know, there's crumbs all over their face and half of it's in their hand. He's relating to them because... God's not wanting information from us. He already knows it. He wants our heart to be submitted and recognize our issue. And what what does the man do? He mans up. Adam, sin, remember, we're talking seconds, moments that sin's even been present in the world. And look at Adam, man, what a guy. The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Man, just seconds that sin has been present in the world, and we see that it's already caused us to blame others for our issues. And we, I mean, we know that the woman did do it, right? And she's no better. Look at what she does. The Lord said to the woman, so what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent. And she didn't have any, I can't blame him because he just blamed me. We don't have any kids yet, otherwise they'd be the perfect to blame them. The school system, oh, no, not there. No government yet. There's no, you know, whatever. What could they blame? Like we do today, we got governments to blame. We got school systems to blame. We got, oh, my parents, my upbringing. We got all this stuff. If you were the only people on earth, you'd do the exact same thing. 
because sin has corrupted us that much. Church, this is why this is such an important truth for us to understand. Because as long as we continue to make excuses, we continue to try to justify ourselves before God. And Paul says, no one will stand before him who tries to justify his own actions. Second part of the char- uh, this goes to the next question. So why do I do this? What does my nature do? It causes me to question God and question even what's good over and over again. Why does my nature do it? Paul's going to tell us here. This is one of the most important and core central passages to the doctrine of, of total depravity in the Bible. And there's many others, but this is one of the most comprehensive. And I want you to see it here and, and understand what that means. So let me read it. And let me talk to you a little bit about what total depravity is and what it is not, okay? Paul then goes on to say, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and, and when Paul writes this, it's probably indented in your Bibles uh, because he's quoting six different passages from different parts of the Old Testament. Paul's showing them, hey, this truth has been revealed thoroughly. And he could have quoted 60 other passages as well. But he says this, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why does my nature do this? Paul tells us, and here's my second point for you, is my sinful nature renders me completely broken. My sinful nature renders me completely broken. As I mentioned, uh, theologians call this total depravity. And there's maybe good and not so good descriptions of that or uses of it, but here's, I think, a a good way to see this and what it, it ultimately was intended to mean. Two things, and we see it right here in this passage. What total depravity does mean, first of all, is it means total because it's all people. There's not one person who's excused from it. That's Paul's point in the first three verses we have here. Look at verses 10 through 13, how Paul says this. He says, none is righteous, not one, no one, no one seeks for God. All have turned away, no one, not even one. Now, I'm no genius, but I think Paul might be trying to get something across to us in that passage. Any idea what that might be? He's making it very clear. There's not one person who's set foot on this earth who measures up. Total depravity, first of all, means every single person. The second thing it means is it's every part of every person. It's not just one aspect of you, but the other parts are pure and and innocent and and you don't do that. It's it's every aspect of you. Paul does this poetically in the latter verses on here. Look at how he quotes some of these poetic passages. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues, their lips, their mouth, their feet. He goes from head to toe. 
You want to name a part? I'll tell you its problems. And then he goes on to our attitudes, not just our actions. It, it led, leads in bloodshed, their paths, even the way we go, are, are ruin and misery, the way of peace they've not known. And he talks about our attitude. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Fear of God is an idea of honor or absolute respect for who he is. See, just the fact that we would question him the way we do. I'm not saying it's ever wrong to ask questions of God or want to understand, but we don't just do that. We question his character. We even use him to get what we want. You know how we do that? We, here, here's how you know you, you fall into this category. You ever said something like this? But God, I, I go to church, I'm, I look at all the things I've served, I do all these things, and then you let this happen, you let cancer strike my family, you let this catastrophe come into my life, this financial ruin, we start to go, God, how could you do that when I've really been whatever you want to put in there? See, the moment we do that, and every single one of us has done that, what we are absolutely saying is that we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping ourselves. God simply is our means to getting what we really want in life, which is the health and the, all these things that are here. And as soon as that doesn't happen, we get upset at God. See, to have a f- true reverence for God is like what we saw in the, in the person of Jesus Christ in the garden, that the Lord, if this cup could be taken and from me, Father, so be it. But not my will, but yours be done. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Paul's revealing to us our brokenness in every possible way. Total depravity, what it does not mean, and this is maybe where the error comes in, and most theologians would never say this, total depravity does not mean that we are as evil as we possibly can be. That's not what's intended by that. Trust me, you and I could do even worse things than we're doing right now. But what it does mean is that every single person is broken. And every single part of every single person is broken. Church, do you realize how relevant this truth is for modern society? Do you realize that almost every issue and problem we face in our world today boils down to believing this truth? Most people reject it. And most people reject this truth that we're not all broken, meaning that every single person, every individual, every culture, every race, every socioeconomic status, every educational level is just as broken as another. And until you embrace this truth, we will never get rid of the issues that constantly divide our nature and divide us as people. See, as long as we don't believe this, then racism can easily flourish. Socioeconomicism can flourish. Educationalism can flourish. Elitism can flourish. Why? Because we're not all on the same ground. If we throw away God, we believe in a, a world that's created from a scientific evolutionary perspective, a survival of the fittest, then why not have all the division that we have? Because the strong survive. These truths are what show us that before God, all of us are equal. That every single one of us is absolutely broken in his sight. And until we recognize that, we'll never receive the gift that he offers. Lastly, Paul says in verses 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, 
It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's his final sentencing, is that the whole world is held accountable, every single person, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So because of our brokenness, saying there's nothing we can do, no works of the law, there's no obedience, there's no religious practice, there's no things we can do in terms of on our own merit to measure up and be justified before God. Here's my final point, is, is what my nature cannot do. My sinful nature prevents me from doing anything on my own to get right with God. My sinful nature prevents me from doing anything on my own to get right with God. See, if you were to die today and stand before God, and God asked you, Chad, Chad based on your, right, on your life, what right do you have to be in my heaven? There's only one answer. There's only one answer for every single human being in this world. What right, based on your life, do you have? Absolutely none. Zero. We're all there. And until we understand this truth, we'll never fully understand the beauty of the gospel. You see, no one is going to be justified before the bar of God's justice on the basis of his or her good works, however great they may be. Your record will not save you. In fact, it's your record that's gotten you and I into the predicament that we're in. Church, this is why Paul started this section with his statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for any who will believe. You see, in our brokenness, even with Jesus coming onto the scene and him coming to earth, that wasn't simply enough. Just knowing about Jesus, even him being there, we saw God in human flesh on the earth, and what did we do? We nailed him to a cross. Even with him being there, we would reject the God of this universe, if he came to us in human flesh, if it were not for the mercy and grace of God to open our eyes to our brokenness. Jesus said these things when he was here on earth. Two simple quotes that God himself said. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Later in the same chapter, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. See, until we come to grips with our utter brokenness, that we would never seek God, we would never be righteous on our own. We will never be overwhelmed with the beauty and grace that God offers in the person of Jesus, not just in sending him to this earth, but in his opening our broken, fallen, sinful eyes to see his beauty and to receive his grace. Church, I don't normally would share the gospel in some way, shape, or form in every message. I'm not going to today. Next week is where that happens in, a, in, a, in all its inclusiveness. The passage is going to reveal 
what is coming next. I just want this truth to sit with us today, and I want to talk a little bit about its relevancy and why it's pertinent to you and me today. Three things I want to leave you with as we close today. The first is this. If you're trusting in your own ability to get right with God, I want you to give serious consideration to what we said and what we said today. If you say you believe in God, yet you don't believe in what he says about your condition and my condition, then you're just believing in yourself. You're believing that you are capable of justifying yourself before God and you will stand on trial on your own merit. I plead with you, give serious consideration to what he says about you and me. Nobody knows us like our creator. Secondly, the implications of this truth for us as a church are enormous. No one in our city, no one in your neighborhood, no one in your workplace, no one in your school, no one in your family will ever be justified before God apart from God's way of providing it. Jesus is not a good option. He's the only option. And, and church, if we don't realize that every single day in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, we are rubbing shoulders with people who are one breath away from spending an eternity in hell separated from a righteous, holy, and loving God because they've never heard the good news of the gospel. If that hasn't hit us, that, that oh, it's not just for the bad people, it's every one of us apart from this truth. That should change how we live. It doesn't mean you become a pastor because pastors won't reach every person. It means you become you the way God made you and where he placed you, and you see the world in which he's placed you in and share that truth with whomever you come across. That you love them enough to tell them there is a God who truly has a plan to save them. And lastly, if you and I know the gospel, if you and I have believed the gospel, then nothing could be more consistent with the beauty, with the grace, and the power of the gospel than a growing passion and urgency to invest your life in sharing it with others and to be a church that courageously takes sacrificial risk to do whatever we can to make sure every person in every neighborhood in our city hears about Jesus and not just hears about him but has a place where they can become a follower of Jesus Christ and, and with other people become the person, the man or the woman that God created them to be. This truth is so important because until we understand how wrecked we are, we will never throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ.